It's the Fun to Know podcast with Dan Buskirk. On today's show, flutist, composer, and band leader, Nicole Mitchell. I guess right now I'm just trying to figure out what else can I give. I would love to um, take something to the next level in terms of making sure there's enough opportunities, you know, for younger people to get involved with this idea, this idea of being an independent thinker, being a creative person, and like how much you can do with that, you know what I mean? Because really, you know, once you have those tools, you can take them anywhere, you know what I mean? You can use them to do anything. Welcome back to the Fun to Know podcast. I'm Dan Buskirk, and here we talk to artists, writers, and musicians about their lives and work. You can find the Fun to Know podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, leave comments for us there, or email us at funtoknowpodcast, always with the numeral two, at gmail.com. You can show your support by leaving a review over at our page on iTunes. On today's show, flutist, composer, and band leader Nicole Mitchell. Around 2001, Ms. Mitchell began to receive notice for her work around Chicago, quickly releasing a flurry of releases on the Delmark, Rogart, and Firehouse 12 labels, among others, all capturing her spirited flute and her deep well of memorable compositions. Her reputation began to stretch out to Europe and worldwide, collecting accolades and commissions and fronting groups like the Black Earth Ensemble, the Black Earth Strings, Ice Crystal, and Sonic Projections. In 2009, she became the first female president of the AACM, the legendary Chicago-born collective whose initials stand for the Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians, and has been home to many of the greatest jazz musicians of the last 50 years. Miss Mitchell has been a downbeat poll winner, and in recent years has left her home in Chicago to live and teach in California at UC Irvine. Find out more about Miss Mitchell at her website at NicoleMitchell.com. I caught up with Nicole at her downtown hotel in Philadelphia a couple of Saturdays back. The night before, I'd attended a stellar show she put on paying tribute to the 50th anniversary of the AACM at the Philadelphia Art Alliance. Appearing with two regular collaborators, drummer Mike Reed and cellist Tamika Reed, Nicole Mitchell played a rare set of covers drawn from the catalogs of Anthony Braxton, Ed Wilkerson, Amina Claudine Myers, and other AACM members. If musically, Mitchell wears her passions on her sleeve, she did in conversation too, easily discussing family deaths, the racism, and other obstacles she has faced, as well as her worries and fears. But she also laughs easily and often. We sat in a darkened banquet room for about 45 minutes till she was off to do the next show in D.C., but we talked about musicians Ornette Coleman, Eric Dolphy, and her teacher Jimmy Cheatham, as well as the Hunger Games, the travails of being an adjunct professor, jazz in Chicago, dwindling student diversity, the writings of sci-fi author Octavia Butler, and more. We'll also hear some examples of Ms. Mitchell's majestic flute, so you'll hear why I have such an unabashed enthusiasm for my subject during this interview. If you like what you hear, check out her fantastic releases. We'll head over now to that dimly lit banquet room and begin the conversation after a short snippet of Ms. Mitchell's work.
I'm here with Nicole Mitchell. Being a jazz DJ, I, I often uh, get stopped into talking to people about jazz, and they, a lot of them have a, an idea that's sort of like that Ken Burns jazz documentary that jazz <laughs> ended in 1970, and when they corner me and say, well, who's good now? Who's, who stands with the greats now? Uh, Nicole Mitchell's name is one that, that, that comes up right away as a, as a, a dazzling uh, member of the jazz community. She's been recording... Uh, as a leader since uh, at least 2001, I believe. And, uh, that was my first record, 2001. Yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, a wonderful array of, of uh, music has poured out of her from large orchestral works to solo flute. She's worked with the Black String Ensemble and the... Uh, the uh, yeah, Black Earth Strings. Black Earth, <laughs> black earth Strings and, and uh, Black uh, Earth... Black Earth Ensemble. Ensemble. Uh, she's been awarded the Chicagoan of the Year in 2006 from the Chicago yeah. Tribune. She's... Uh, had a, a just a parade of accolades, and I couldn't be more excited to be here talking with her uh, in Philadelphia. <laughs> you uh, just last night. Uh, oh, before we get started, I, okay. I, I wanted to, to just uh, bring up uh, just two days ago the death of Ornette Coleman. Mm. I was wondering if you had any any thoughts about Ornette. Uh, yeah, did he I affect did. you as a musician? Um, I'm very thankful for Ornette and what he brought to us. You know, because really, I came to jazz through Ornette in a sense because I was really inspired by what he was doing and what Eric Dolphy was doing more than anybody else when I first came to improvisation. And so he really held a special place for me and and not just his music and how he approached it, but him as a, as a person and how he was fearless in being himself and just having that example of someone who had a different narrative, not the stereotypical jazz narrative, you know, in terms of who he was and, and how he was not afraid to just be him. You know, the fact that he was a vegetarian and he always kind of had his own ideas about how he wanted to do things and even in spite of the obstacles that people might have put including chairs being thrown at him and whatever he still continued with his dream of what he wanted to do and you know and we're very rewarded for that and I'm rewarded for that personally I was really excited that I got to see him at the Chicago Jazz Festival um, several years ago and I got to bring him flowers and thank him for his for his journey and like for what he's contributed because it really did have like a deep impact on me his music uh, yeah thanks <laughs> it's a, he's yeah it was great when the in new york times yesterday uh, yeah. uh ran an obituary and they said you know when you uh, more than as much as any figure in 20th century art he represented uh, you know the ideas of freedom and independence in, in mm -hmm. america and uh, Definitely. Uh, you were here last night to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the AACN. That's right. And your credits, you always talked about that you were you were uh, president of the. Yeah, I'm a former president. The, I guess the former first woman president. <laughs> um, and. Uh, the AACM is the uh, Association for the Advancements of Creative Musicians. It started as a. Uh, a kind of union in the in the in the mid late 60s uh, for it's 1965 and it's an amazing it's been an amazing journey for me with the AACM because just like Ornette I mean now you have a whole collective of people that are supporting each other in the ideas of original music and basically all these people have completely different ideas so completely diverse but being able to support each other in, in what their dreams are and create new platforms for the music's development um, to educate um, and make more opportunities for young people to learn about it and to share it. Uh, wh you know? What did your, your job really entail being a, a president? Oh my of the goodness. ACM? <laughs> 
Well, first of all, I consider myself a bridge between generations. For some reason, my generation, there wasn't so many people. Miss Me and Jeff Parker were pretty much the only people in this kind of um, the age group that we were in, and as well as David Boykin, who left the organization a little bit after we got in. But then we, you know, wanted to bring younger people in. So, we, you know, there's this no, there's a whole nother, you know, stream of young people like Tamika Reed and Mike Reed, as well as um, we have our very newest members. We have Renee Baker, Coco Elysis, and now Jovia Armstrong. I'm giving you names that you can look up later. <laughs> um, Jovia Armstrong and Monkwe and Dosi. They're, they're some of the very newest members that just came in this year year those two but um i wanted to be a bridge to help kind of bridge the gap in in communication and you know there people have different ideas of how they frame and understand the world and you know i can kind of relate to both you know being born in you know in the late 60s and um I kind of really somehow caught that spirit of the black arts movement um, because my mom was involved in a gallery, a black folk art gallery in Syracuse where I was born. And so this was my introduction to this kind of idea of self-determination and institution building. And so I think that really made, you know, planted the seed for me. So when I came to Chicago, the ACM, I mean, music was what I do. So it made total sense to connect with this collective. And then the mentorship has been amazing so as president that was one of the things i did as well as try to form more partnerships say with european festivals to like help develop the school in terms of places where we could partner like the park district and chicago state university um and making sure that the anniversary concerts happen like i I worked really hard on the 40th anniversary as the vice president and then the 45th anniversary as president. So those were some of the things that I was involved with. You you touched back on... uh And grant writing. (laughs) (laughs) But all these things, I mean, the ACM is truly a collective. So being president, I mean, you, you, you can... It contribute your visions and you can do a lot of labor but it's really a volunteer organization every musician that's involved is doing this work volunteer and it is a collective effort wow you yeah. touched on uh, your upbringing for for a second yeah. there I, I i i love to get you know people's origin stories that uh, you were you were raised in syracuse yeah and it sounds like you had very artistic parents well, yeah my mom was a self-taught painter and and she also did like science fiction writing and you know and like she was really into poetry so I think this is where you know I I wanted to take on that path that she left behind because she left me she she transitioned when I was a teenager so I kind of took a conscious effort like I'm going to continue her path because she didn't get a chance to finish but yeah she was an artist but my dad was an engineer <laughs> so. were you an only child or? no I have two older brothers two older brothers yeah uh, so when when did you uh, first get interested in music and picking up the flute? Well, actually, I think I was I was very much absorbing music by my brother because one of my brothers is an amazing guitar player, and he was practicing like twelve hours a day in the house, and he could play classical, jazz, rock, and everything. And when he used to have to babysit me, he would try to scare me playing like weird, <laughs> scary music, and I think that's how I got attracted to free jazz. <laughs> <laughs> that's wild yeah did, when did you uh, start taking music lessons and uh, well I actually I started on piano and I don't remember how old I was 
I was probably maybe eight or something. I was playing around on the piano when I was younger, but I think around eight. And then I started, got the viola in fourth grade because they brought the strings to fourth grade and you get to choose a string instrument. And I didn't want to pick violin because everybody else in the class picked the violin. So I picked viola. But then I learned to read because I was the only one on the viola part. <laughs> but then the next year they brought the flutes and all the wind instruments and I heard the flute and I was like, what is that? I knew that was it. But then my parents were like, well, you know, we bought the viola, so too bad, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so I actually, you know, it took about four years before I was able to convince them to get a flute. So wow. it wasn't until eighth grade when I got the flute. Were there, you know, uh, shows in, in school to, to take part in as a, as a flute player and everything? When I started in eighth grade, yeah, we had, um, we did have a music program. And that actually helped me a lot because at the time I was in eighth grade, well, we moved to California basically when I was in third grade. Where, where in California? To Anaheim. Oh. And this is where. <laughs> Home of Disneyland? Yeah, it wasn't so Disney happy for me because um, we were like one of two black families in the neighborhood and they were not happy about it at all. They oh, did not want us there. And so even in the school and in the neighborhood, I was constantly. Um, being um, confronted with hostility and, um, you know, just hostility and violence sometimes. Like when Roots came on TV, some kids like picked up some ropes and were chasing me, trying to whip me and calling me Kizzy. And so it was, it that was like my daily life in Orange County. And I really just wanted to get out of there, but at least the music, that was my safety place. You know, like with the music, I felt like I realized I can make another world in music. I don't have to deal with this world. I can't. I might not be able to control the stuff going on here, but in the music, I can, I can um, make whatever I want, and nobody can take that from me, and nobody can destroy it or attack me in it. You know what I mean? So I think that's why the improvisation for me was really was really a core thing when I found improvisation. It was like this is it because that's something that. I can design myself, and and so I, that's why I had trouble in jazz programs because they were like, well, no, you need to play eighth notes. You need to do it this way, and I'm like, you can't tell me what to do with this. This is mine. <laughs> I have to do this, you know, how I feel it, you know what I mean? So I didn't, you know, I had a little bit of a struggle in the education programs, at, you know, in music, but I, I got through them, and, you know, I ended up getting my master's in jazz, but it was not an easy road because I was very hard-headed and didn't want to I didn't want to do it that way you know what I mean luckily I didn't listen (laughs) (laughs) they couldn't break me (laughs) right I I didn't trust them so I just didn't listen so when you graduated into into college to a music system to a music I did I got a master's at Northern Illinois University how how was uh, schooling there um, like I, I just described it. <laughs> oh, that was that was the whole fight there. I mean, it was it was. I mean, I had. I mean, you know, um, it was in my juries. I would, you know, I don't want to, you know, I definitely got positive things out. I'm not saying it was all bad, but there was definitely this thing, and and I was already involved in the ACM at that point because I went back to school later. So I pretty much because of this challenge, I left school. You know, I left Oberlin, I went to Chicago, got involved with the ACM. So I didn't go back to school until I was almost 30. So that was 
a better time for me because then I was strong enough to to actually hold my ground. Yeah, you know, you knew who you were. A bit yeah, by then. yeah. Sure. So at that point, you know, of course I did what I you know what I was expect of my expectations and um, I held to the standards of what they wanted, but it wasn't exactly how they wanted it. And I just remember one person in my jury saying, "You know, I can't judge her because I don't understand what she's doing." <laughs> 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 While other people were saying, oh, you know, you this ACM, I know you're in the ACM, but, you know, you still need to do things this way and da-da-da-da, you know. But uh, I, it's a, It was a jazz program you yeah, were into? Yeah. I can imagine maybe the classical people saying that. No, the classical people, I didn't have any problem with them oh, at really? all, no. Wow. No, I didn't have any problem with the classical. <laughs> <laughs> Chicago is uh, has uh, contributed so much to uh, to jazz music, and especially in recent years, uh, the, the Delmark label really uh, documents a lot of uh, that that great work. And, and you've worked for the Delmark, the Delmark label a lot. Yeah. But, but how how did you find the the uh, Chicago jazz community? Uh, to oh it, well, it was like a dream come true. I mean, I always felt isolated in basically my entire life, especially living in Orange County. But even you know my journeys after that. But then when I came to Chicago, it was like 
now I can be a part of something. There's other people who like think like I do and we can get together and do things, you know. And I was just reminiscing actually yesterday about um, we had this whole circle of artists that were like visual artists, filmmakers, poets. And I was actually the only musician in the circle at the time. Um, but we were all around the same age, and most of them went to either the Art Institute or Columbia College in Chicago. Um, and this was, like, right when I first moved, and it was very exciting for me to, like, wow, I have this circle of friends, and they're all, we're all trying to make a difference with the art, and they're all, like, you know, it's like they're trying to use their art as a vehicle to, you know, to maybe help with some kind of transformation or to be visionary and it was really exciting to me and so Chicago really has been very very generous with me and my development and you know I I don't know what I could say like without Fred Anderson in the Velvet Lounge or when I first came to Chicago and met Maya who was in the AACM and we started Samana which was like you know an all-women ensemble which kind of helped to um I guess I, I was insulated in this all women's group for a few years before I really developed my courage to like start my own group on my, you know, and do how thing, things the way I really wanted to do them. So, I mean, you know, I think Chicago is still a really special place and, and the Jazz Institute really does a lot as well as the ACM. I mean, the Jazz Institute not doesn't just have festivals. I mean, they have a whole youth program with high school students that's very successful in helping to you know not only give free um, jazz lessons to some of the students that can't afford it you know in high school but also like they have a jazz links program and um so i'm just you know chicago's got a lot going on (laughs) (laughs) i was uh surprised to uh uh, when I was Googling you, doing research on you, to, f- to find this article in uh, the New York Times, uh, done in 20, 2012, talking about the, the, the struggles to uh, economically survive with your, with your art in, in, in Chicago. It's such a world-class player as you. Yeah. I, I think it, a lot of people have that romantic imagination yeah, that you know, everything's beautiful <laughs> in that way. But It was kind of sad because basically most of my income was coming from Europe you know, in terms of performing in Europe. And I think that's the case with jazz artists in general, anywhere in the country that, unfortunately, the club scene doesn't really, you can't, you can't pay rent (laughs) on that, you know. And, I mean, we're thankful we still have it. We still do have venues where we can play. But, you know, to think that in the time of Ellington or in the time of Charlie Parker, you could literally pay your rent with that. But now it's just not reality. It's just not the way things are. And and so, you know, when you're touring and performing and in this and in most cases overseas, that has been for most people that are doing it that's their bread and butter and that was my situation I was I've always been teaching ever since I've you know finished school like I've been in the colleges I was at like probably five or six different universities in Chicago but I never could actually get a position I was just a part-time what they call adjunct professor and so for whatever reason I wasn't valued enough to be put on a tenure track anywhere unfortunately and that's kind of the whole reality that happens with local artists like you know you're more treasured outside of where you developed your career so so it's it's hard to imagine somebody more accomplished in their in their craft than than you (laughs) to not be able to find tenure track but I mean that's something just a, a month ago there was an adjunct 
nationwide adjunct strike that this is a problem. Yeah, it's really tough. I mean, for some schools, it's like working at McDonald's. I mean, it's pretty tough. It was great. I mean, I loved working with the students. It just was very different because they, when you're working adjunct, they, this is just kind of economics, but they basically are upset if you're going overseas because, well, you need to be in the classroom. But if you have a real position, then it's like, yeah, go overseas because you're helping the reputation of the school and this is part of your research. So that, so I'm very thankful, you know, now I'm teaching it at UC Irvine. I'm a full professor at UC Irvine and we have a really imaginative program. It's called Integrated Composition, Improvisation and Technology. And so I'm basically doing exactly what I want to do and working with really brilliant students. And it's going to be a PhD program starting in the fall. So that's really exciting. Yeah. How how was the the relocation from uh, Chicago? I actually was ready to go because, you know, well, first of all, my, my father was getting up in age and he still lived out there. And I really wanted to be closer to him and spend more time with him. So I was really feeling that call to go out there anyway. And so actually me and my husband, like I told him, I said, I don't know if I'm going to be able to find a job. But like he was like, OK, I can cover it until we get there. You know, if you if you, let's just go. And then I applied for that position and I actually got the position. So everything really was al- aligned, you know, with the universe. And um, my father actually got six, six months after I got there and he was in the hospital for six months. And I was able to be in the hospital with him every day until he left. So I'm really thankful for that time. Yeah. So how have you found the the, the students at, at Irvine? Um, how do you find the younger generation today in general? I'm always curious. To well, actually, I think they're the students we have are really hard workers and they're really smart. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because you, I guess UCI is not easy to get into anyway. So our students are really smart. What I'm actually struggling with right now is that our school is a public institution. It's selective, of course, because the UC system is very selective, but it is a public institution. And we only have 1.7% African-American students at the school. So that's a problem, (laughs) especially for me. Absolutely, absolutely. (laughs) So, I mean, that's something that, you know, I'm putting a lot of energy into trying to, first of all, what I do whatever I can to contribute to raising the quality for the black students on campus because you know when you have that low of a population then it becomes easy to be a target for negative you know experiences and hostility and ignorance and and all kinds of things so you know I'm really you know, it kind of cuts out a lot of work for me on that end. I'm an equity advisor at the school and, you know, working on various committees trying to help improve that situation. It's something that, that has, has come up. Uh, I'm talking to older jazz musicians and they uh, they are saddened by the, the, the change in the music from something that's really come out of black culture and come out of black neighborhoods, just something that has transformed into a conservatory uh, yeah. uh, music. Um, so, uh, you know, that the the, uh, the the inequities in, 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 in black students, you know, across the country is, is, is something that is uh, affecting jazz as well. It definitely you know? is affecting jazz because, I mean, even now, I mean, in Chicago, you know, most of the, the public schools on the south side and west side of Chicago where, 
you know, a, a majority of the African American population is doesn't have arts in their school at all. I mean, not just music, but nothing. It's been a very explicit attack on black schools in Chicago directly with Rahm Emanuel taking over. Well, actually, it started with Reagan. Yeah. (laughs) And it just never got better. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it started on the federal level. The biggest thing in my school was the the, the marching band, and and that marching band does not exist anymore. Wow. Yeah, and, and I was very fortunate in Anaheim that, you know, our school system had a music program because that was the only thing going for me <laughs> was that music program. So I was very, you know, I'm very lucky that we had, you know, that I had the opportunity to learn about music in elementary school and high school. And it's just, it's just not, I think when we talk about problems with the whole country's educational system in terms of student test scores and all this kind of thing and I mean the arts is how you make sense out of the world in a, in a way and I think we really need to reevaluate how we're how we're focusing on what's important what how we're prioritizing what learning is because you know this whole you know it's like the whole testing thing and then math and you know math English science use you can use art to help make meaning out of all of those things you know what I mean and then they can do well because there's a passion and an interest there you know what I mean I've heard it described as the the disbalance that's happened between the sciences and the humanities and yeah we're with you know only teaching towards the scientific end we're sort of telling people what to do but not not who to be Oh, that's that's very well said. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, to to really think of, of one's personal place in the world, that the humanities is the only thing that yeah. that helps you through those questions, and uh, all the math and science in the world isn't going to answer those questions for for a student. You know. Yeah. Um, have you been able to tap into a into a musical scene uh, being out in California? Well, Are you close to Los Angeles? Or? Well, we I live in Long Beach, mm-hmm. and. That's in long, in L.A. County, but it's like the southernmost part of L.A. County because I still do have to commute to Irvine. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's been a little bit of a challenge just because I'm so involved, I think, with the school. Most of my performing, I'm getting on an airplane, and I didn't want that to be my narrative. I, wanted, I really do have the desire to be, you know, connected with the local scene in some kind of way so i'm trying to work on that i actually brought my students to perform just a few days ago in long beach and so you know um, i definitely am going to continue doing that but in terms of of a lot of performances i've done some in san diego there's a really great club in la called the blue whale and also the world stage which was billy higgins he mm-hmm. founded it and it's still there and in those two places are very special so there is something and the thing is i think people overlook the really great legacy of creative music in los angeles i mean there is a real i mean you have mingus i mean when coleman was there eric dolphy james newton james newton you know like you have all these amazing artists in who are creative musicians who this is where they really developed a lot of their ideas right there and unfortunately like in Chicago, like say in Chicago, there's a focus. Because I think maybe because of the ACM and because of the the great jazz festival, or Chicago Jazz Festival, the press 
really, you know, gives notice to these things that are developing and happening all throughout the year. But in L.A., it's a little bit harder because you have Hollywood and you have all this other stuff in arts that are really critical to pay attention to. So the, the jazz scene is not really that much paid notice to, I guess. But there's a lot of really interesting things going on and there's a lot of great artists there. There's just so many artists that are like unheralded and very well-known artists. Ambrose is there, you know. Um, so, and th- there's a lot of great people teaching at UCLA, you know. So, they don't perform as much on the scene in LA, but they they do do some performing there. I know back in the '60s and '70s, there was a lot of you know work, just soundtrack work, to be done for jazz musicians. Exactly. And there a lot of uh, jazz musicians yeah, who that's you know, kind that was of their dried up <laughs> a little bit <laughs> that's with up. the whole electronic thing. Yeah, I guess you don't need a whole band anymore in that no, room. You don't uh, need a whole you, orchestra. You do, but Some they pe- don't understand that they do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then you have the legacy with the Pan-African Orchestra, oh, yeah. UGMA, which was, it's really a parallel to the AACM. It Horace started Tapscott. Around, yeah. And those musicians are still... You know, they still have a community and they still do some performing, not as much, you know, but they still are actively connected, you know, with each other. I'm, and I'm s- spacing on the name. Horace Tapscott right. did work with a, uh, that with was a his fl- group. Uh, the flautist is, is, is well out there whose name yeah. is escaping me, Adele. a female flautist. Adele Sebastian? Or yeah, I don't, I n- of course I didn't get to meet her because she passed oh, many years ago. I wasn't aware of that. But, um, but yeah. There was a lot of really great musicians that came through his organ, his band. They never made a nonprofit or, you know, a, you know, so it's a little bit different in terms of how how it moves forward now. But that's the same. I mean, the Sunrise Orchestra, I mean, they still keep it going. Oh, yeah. Know? They're they're still an institution in the yeah, city. I exactly. saw <laughs> Marshall Allen at midnight out of the club <laughs> on Gerard Street just a few yeah. few weeks ago playing music.
you did drop a, a name of, of uh, a musician I hold very close to myself, oh. and, uh, Eric Dolphy. Oh the, yeah, the uh, he's like my main inspiration on flute. Yeah, yeah, he's such a and another person who uh, personally as a character really uh, had a had an incredible integrity about him. Yeah. Uh, when did when did you first d- discover him? Well, actually, I was roller skating and playing the flute at UC San Diego, just la, 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 la. And the jazz teacher, who happened to be Jimmy Cheatham, um, the trombonist from the Count Basie Band, and he was the head of the jazz program at UC San Diego, which was my first college experience. Um, he was like, you know, you should take my improv class. Because at that time, I, w- I didn't know. I didn't really realize that as a flutist that I could go in that direction. Because in high school, they never, they had a jazz band in my high school, but they never even, I never saw them play. I never had any connection with them. And no one ever said anything about, oh, you know, you could try this too, you know. But um, so I, I took the class. I guess he saw me roller skating and playing the flute and said, oh, yeah, I think she's a candidate. <laughs> so he he had me in his class and then one day he said come to my office and i came in his office and he had this little tiny piece of paper and he wrote something on it and folded it up and gave it to me and said go to the library (laughs) and i opened it up and it said eric dolphy (laughs) (laughs) so i went down there and my head exploded but (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean it really wasn't even that long a period he recorded but boy the 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 amount of music that he put out it's true it still has such a such a power it does and uh, him and coltrane together it's 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 hard to imagine where they would have both you know taken the the uh the sounds they were and i like his playing with mingus too yeah yeah and and on on he really had a different approach to to the saxophone and to the bass clarinet and and to the flute it's just a a, a huge figure. Yeah. Yeah. Is there any other uh, flute idols that you had sort of as a, a flautist? Well, I really think Hubert Laws is totally amazing. He's just a great, great player. Um, I, I would love to meet him one day. I mean, he's in L.A. I just kind of, I guess I'm shy. I don't know how to go about trying to meet him, but... <laughs> I love. I should get James to I like. I think he would be glad me to meet me. you. I would love. <laughs> I would love to hear you two together. Yeah, and and you know some of my there's there's some really great flute players right now. Um, there's uh, Delandria Mills, who I think a lot of people are sleeping on, but she's an amazing flutist, and I think she lives in Baltimore. Um, and and um, then there's. Um, Pender Hughes, she's mm-hmm. a young, young flute player, but she's really amazing. You should look her up. And, you know, of course, Jamie Baum, she's doing a lot of great things, especially, like, with her composition. And, you know, so it's exciting that there's so many. There's, you know, there's more flute players out there now, I think. More women especially, I think. Yeah. You know, and so I'm really excited about that. And I just, you know... I guess right now I'm just trying to figure out what else can I give, you know, like how I would love to um, be, I know, I mean, I've been involved with the ACM, but I would love to kind of like take something to the next level in terms of making sure there's enough opportunities, you know, for younger people to get involved with this idea, this idea of being an independent thinker, being a creative person, and like how much you can do with that, you know what I mean? Because really, you know, once you have those tools, you can take them anywhere, you know what I mean? You can use them to do anything. And I feel like there's just, there's, you know, people get, the young people I feel like 
some of them are being fed all this negative stuff. I mean, all the movies, like, why do the sci-fi movies have to be negative? Like, as if, okay, now it's going to be the end of the world. Is there some other, like, there's some other, like, end game we can have? I mean, I mean <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And, I, and how how does that impact their imagination and their vision about what's possible if they're always seeing these things, All you know? And then the Hunger Games, like, you know, it's like they're, it's like kids killing kids on a movie. I mean, I was horrified when I first I think saw that is that. building to revolution, though, from what I understand. I think it ends with the, the uh, corrupt government being overthrown by the, by I the hope woman. I so. Yeah, but, <laughs> but yeah, it is unbelievable. I was, you know, at a movie theater a while ago and saw like five trailers and four of them were all about the end of the world. And in some ways, I, I think I kind of almost feel like it's a, a, a blindsided thing of, of America and the end of empire in a way. That, oh, that that's a really good. That's a really good insight. I think you're right. That I is think, something that's and really they think it's the end of end. the world. It's really the oh, it's a transition <laughs> into a new chapter. Yeah, there's a, and there might be you know there might be some other head lead players in that new chapter. Yeah, that makes sense. There was a there was a South American film I saw a while ago called Blindness, based on. I can't remember. It was a, a novelist, uh, a South American novelist, and that talks about this apocalyptic event where everybody goes blind and uh, terrible things happen. Oh like it happened and all these apocalyptic things. But then at the end, sight is re- re- returned and, and civilization is returned. And I thought in South America, with, with uh, some of the oppressive governments they've had there, they understand that bad things happen, but there's another side of them as well and that you, you come through wow. and, and that the, there's a... It's not the end of everything the way it is <laughs> in Apocalypto or everything wow. in an American film. You're you're a big sci-fi fan. I, oh I, yeah, you, you've done uh, two records now, I believe, on the the writings of Octavia Butler. That's right. Uh, talk about that. Octavia <laughs> Butler is a super inspiration to me. Actually, again with my mother, like she was into this religious science fiction that she was writing herself, and I really, I mean, one of my goals is hopefully to bring some of this writing out and um, publish it. What, what, what was her What was her writing like? What was your mother? She she was an amazingly imaginative person, and she did she wrote a lot of poetry, but she also did write a book on a science fiction book, and she called it religious science fiction. And I don't want to give the story away because I want to I want to publish it eventually, but. Um, but she also did read a lot of Octavia Butler, so the books were in the house already. So I was very turned on to those things in my as a teenager, and and this idea that you could use science fiction as a vehicle to talk about the social issues that are really relevant now and think about them in a different way, where you're not being defensive about it. You know, a lot of times it's like. If, you, if you're doing something in real time, it's like you're pointing blame or something when you're critiquing things. But then if you do it through fantasy, then and now it's like, oh, you get another way to look at things. And I think she was really good at that, um, Octavia Butler. A fascinating woman. And you actually met her before. before yeah, Chicago. I met her at this Black Writers Conference at Chicago State University, which was organized by Haki Maidabudi, who is one of the oldest, um, has the oldest African-American um, publishing house, bu- book publishing house in the country, in Chicago, and you know, so Thurwell Press is also another real institution from the Black Arts Movement. It started in 1967, and so this this conference they were doing every year at Chicago State for several years, and she was there, and it was like 
the vibration coming from this woman <laughs> was intense. I was like, wow, that's the mind that makes those books, you know what I mean? And wow, wouldn't it be cool to make music inspired by some of these stories? And, I, you know, it's like I'm always terrified when I'm reading her, her books, but it's like I can't stop reading them. <laughs> and so it's kind of I thought it was also a really great connection between this creative music and science fiction because it helps people to relate to it. You know, it's like if they're relating through literature or through this idea of a story or a narrative that is science fiction, they're going to expect there's going to be some crazy stuff going on. And now they can understand it, the music better or be have a, a entry point to really understand the music. You know, because in a sense with ACM, like you look at Braxton, you know, or Muhal, I mean, these musicians are Roscoe. What they're doing is they're they're being scientists they're like what can i how can i redesign these these parameters of music of sound to do this or to do that or what will be the effect if i try this i mean that's a scientific approach in some ways and so to bring those two things together made a whole lot of sense to me and so i did um i xenogenesis suite was the first one on um Firehouse 12 Records, and then the new one just came out last year, Intergalactic Beings, on um, FPE Records, and that's called For Practically Everyone. That's the name of the record company. <laughs> it's a new Chicago label. Uh, yeah. and, and you really went with a larger band to, uh, to yeah, translate like, those words. Yeah, Black Earth Ensemble, um, and I had Monkwe and Dosi in both of those projects as vocalists in and her role was kind of an alter ego because on one hand she was like the one lone human who had to deal with this new alien environment and then on the other hand because i didn't give her words she sounds like an alien <laughs> <laughs> so it's like a double identity and it, it makes us kind of face what is other and like how do we look at these people at or you know dealing with extraterrestrials versus humans instead of what we deal with was pe people from different backgrounds looking at each other as other or you know kind of challenging us to face those things and also to face the fear of you know why are human beings so incredibly creative and at the same time so destructive like how we destroy the earth we destroy each other we're basically when we kill and the other people when humans kill other people they're killing themselves like why do we do why do humans do that you know what i mean like it, it's scary to me it's really scary <laughs> and uh, i guess i'm like out of time <laughs> can i can i can i get you to uh just to talk for a second about about uh, what's next what's uh What's the future hold oh, for, for you as a musician? Oh, sure. Well, actually, I did a few really exciting things this year, and they're continuing. Like, one thing I did was a new collaboration with musicians from Mali, Balake Sissoko, who's a chora player. He's an amazing, also, composer as well. We did a project. It was called, <laughs> I want it to be black beyond but the title we ended up with was beyond black which to me doesn't make sense because i don't know if there is anything beyond black. <laughs> what's beyond i don't know but it, it, it's funny it's fun so anyway um we did some some development in france and then some touring twice last year twice this year well th last year and this year i'm sorry and so i hope that we can put out some recording of this project we did, which is an ensemble that had Chicago musicians and musicians from Mali, and really trying to do get in there, dig in there, and 
and really get inside of each other's music. And it was really amazing opportunity for me like that. Wow, as a woman, like I'm bringing these compositions to these Malian musicians that they don't even have women playing instruments in their country. But it was like total mutual respect. And, you know, I, we learned their music, they learned our music, and, you know, we collaborated and it was really exciting. And then we also did a duo project of just flute and Cora. And uh-huh. so, I'm, and that was recorded. There's a little. You know, it's taking a little time to work out, but I'm hoping that recording can come out because I'm really excited about that. And I would love for us to do performances, you know, and share that because it's really special. And then the, this, I did a new project. It was more is called Mandorla Awakening. I started it in 2013. I did a work in progress. And then this is another sci-fi focus project, except it's my own narrative. And the narrative basically is, First of all, what would it look like for, for to have an advanced society that's in tune with nature? Because we have an advanced society that's out of tune with nature. What would that look like? And also, um, this idea of this the the merging between what we have now, which is a bit dystopic, and what in that place, which I'm calling Mandorla. So the piece is called Mandorla Awakening. And I and it's like I'm I've done two projects of it that include either either music and video or music video and choreography and I'm so I did it I premiered the second one in Chicago called Emerging Worlds just last month and hopefully that recording will come out soon and and it and it involves some Tatsu Aoki and Kojiro Omozaki. So I'm involving Japanese-American musicians in this as well. So there's a collaboration there. And the other recording I have to like actually get back in the studio to do. But I want to continue this type of work with that idea and just keep kind of riffing off of this idea because it's kind of hard to do. <laughs> it's a challenge. <laughs> but and, it's fun. <laughs> it's nice to hear about a, a, a plethora of ideas <laughs> yeah. rolling out of you because it's, it's been uh, so fascinating following your career uh, along the way so far. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for taking time out Thanks today so much and, for, and you coming know, and talking. Yeah, for coming here and, and coming to the concert last night and it's great to meet you. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs>
One, two, three, four. That's it for the show. Thanks again to Nicole Mitchell for squeezing fun to know into her tight schedule. Thanks, too, to Mark Christman and Ars Nova Productions. You can check out more about Nicole at her website, NicoleMitchell.com. Catch past episodes of the Fun to Know podcast at SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Catch me spinning Jazz Mondays at 11 a.m. EST at WPRB Princeton. Read my film reviews at Falker.com. And check back in two weeks for more Fun to Know. I tell you, so wake up, it's time.